this is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on the Black experience. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. My name is Isabel Cañas, and my new novel is called Vampires of El Norte. This is the season for all things creepy, so it's the perfect time to read about a favorite monster, the vampire. Author Isabel Cañas certainly draws from traditional vampire folklore, but she puts an original twist on this creature in her new novel, Vampires of El Norte. Set during the Mexican-American War in 1846, the book follows Nena and Nestor, childhood sweethearts separated by tragedy, only to be unexpectedly brought back together to face the monsters threatening their community. I recently spoke with Isabel Cañas about blending together genres and how history served as inspiration for the book. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. Could you give our listeners a brief description of Vampires of El Norte? Absolutely. So Vampires of El Norte is what I would bill as a supernatural Western. It's set in what is now South Texas in 1846, um, right at the outbreak of the Mexican-American War. And it's about a pair of childhood sweethearts uh, whose names are Nana and Nestor. And they are separated at the age of 13 by a tragedy um, that features it looms very large in the narrative because they are reunited nine years later when they are thrown together on the road to war as a healer. Nana is a curandera or a healer. And Nestor is a member of the Mexican cavalry. They have to work through their past and their romantic problems in the present um, in order to team up to defend their home from threats both human and supernatural. The supernatural, of course, being the vampires of the title. <laughs> So I want to talk to you about Nana and Nestor's childhood friendship, because as you mentioned, we first meet them when they're 13. They are mm -hmm. digging for silver on Nana's family ranchero. And it feels a little bit like Romeo and Juliet sort of scenario, because Nana's family does not approve of Nestor as a potential match for Nana. So talk to me about their relationship and the social class that divides them. Absolutely. So we do have a pair of star-crossed lovers here. The forbidden romance trope is definitely one of my favorites. Uh, Nena is the daughter of the ranch owner. And so she's of the landowning class. Um, she's kind of like, I guess, the upstairs to Nestor's downstairs. Nestor is a vaquero or a cowboy, and he is the son of a vaquero who was the son of a vaquero. And so he, um, he as I write in the book, he says he is um, a man of dust who serves men of silver, and he knows his place in the world, and he's really ready to fight his way out of it. Um, he believes that people who work hard should be able to move up in life, and the world that he lives in has very uh, strictly stratified social classes. And so you're right in saying that Nana's family is not interested in having Nestor around to distract her from better matches, so to speak, politically and financially. But they aren't really taking into account matters of the heart. And that is where Nestor is number one, the best match for Nana. <laughs> this book is a fresh take on one of the more popular monsters in pop culture. The vampires in this story are truly terrifying. They don't have eyes. They sometimes walk on all fours and they have massive fangs. And not just two, but many, multiple things. Were they influenced by vampires in today's pop culture, or do they come from traditional folklore, or did they stem from your own imagination? 
I would say my vampires are a little bit of everything. So to answer your question, yes. <laughs> uh, they are partially creatures of my own imagination. I definitely was inspired by long road trips that my family took through West Texas when I was a kid. We used to drive from Southern California to visit my family in Texas, in Austin. And I just remember driving through the hills of West Texas in the dark, looking out from the safety of the warm car and looking out in the dark and thinking like, what is out there? You know, when you're a kid and like my dad would take us camping, I had a huge fear of, you know, the critters that crawled around in the woods, the things that were bigger than me, the things that definitely ate things about my size for dinner. You know, I was about 10 at the time. And so I took that fear and I ran with it. I love popular vampires, like the traditional, like, uh, 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 I want to suck your blood, like from the Count on Sesame Street to the big bad Dracula that I read when I was 17, Bron Stoker's finest work. I definitely, I love them. I even liked Edward Cullen, though I was much more of a Jacob girl myself. <laughs> um, but I knew from the start with this book, I wanted something different. I wanted something that played more with uh, blood-sucking monsters and witches that I encountered in folklore from the region. Um, and I definitely didn't feel like the infectious nature of vampirism and a lot that, that exists in a lot of folklore and a lot of pop culture was not for my book. I just knew that from the start. I knew I wanted a monster. I wanted this to be a creature feature. I wanted something that was scary to look at and that you were afraid of if it were stalking you in the night. So the vampires are not the only monsters in this book. Talk to me about the threat of the Anglos or the Yankees. You know, vampire was an applicable term for them too, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I was also very inspired by the words of a, a 19th century rancher and politician called Cheno Cortina. This is a real man who was a contemporary of the events that the fictional events that happen in my book. And uh, after um, South Texas became a part of the United States and the border moved over him and his family. And he suddenly, like many other people, like many of my ancestors, found themselves the citizens of a very Host, a nation that was very hostile to them, an invading country. You know, in Mexican historiography, the Mexican-American War is called the North American Invasion because that's what it was to them. Um, he, Cheno Cortina, this politician, wrote an open letter to other Mexican citizens of the state of Texas saying, you know, rise up, fight back. And he called the Anglo settlers, quote, vampires in the guise of men. He said, quote, they came and scattered themselves in the settlements because um, your industry awoke the avarice which led them. So he, in the 1850s, likened um, these settlers who were coming and encroaching on Mexican land uh, to vampires. And, you know, I read this quote when I was in the beginning stages of putting together this book, and I was worried at the time that I was shoehorning in the vampires. Like, what place do vampires have in this book? You know, when you read the folklore, there are all sorts of blood-sucking creatures, but none of them are creatures that I could, you know, that we could easily identify as, you know, like Count Dracula or air quotes vampire. But here was this man drawing this analogy, using this very vivid, visceral imagery to refer to the settler colonialism that was happening at the time in the 1850s. And I thought, damn, there's my book. There we go. We're <laughs> off to the races. I was going to ask you what it was about this, this war that made it an ideal setting for the book. So you're saying you had the idea of vampires first and then this war presented itself? 
It did. It did. I actually, it came out of a conversation I had with my editor. I had kind of a different idea brewing at the time, but this just goes to show that like when you're a writer, the rejections never stop. I pitched the idea to my publisher and they were like, nah, maybe not. But this one character and the setting, those are gold. Those you should keep. The setting was South Texas um, in the 1840s. Um, the valley, the Rio Grande Valley is where my family, my mom's family is from. She grew up there. It's where we come from for generations and then this character called Nestor this cowboy this vaquero swaggered into the draft fully formed with a very strong voice and my editor was like him run with that and so I did and it was um it was a very powerful moment because I realized for the first time I was being given permission permission that I should have been able to give myself to write about you know, people like my family, like so much like my family, like my debut, The Hacienda is set in 19th century Mexico as well. But you know, it's still kind of, um, it's a part of Mexico that my family doesn't hail from. So there's still a, a level of distance, so to speak, but South Texas is intimately connected to my family history. And so it was very empowering to be told, yes, this story is is worthy of telling it is worthy to be told because our stories absolutely are but for so many years we've been told writers like me and other marginalized writers have been told nah it won't sell no maybe not but suddenly somebody said yes and here's the book i want to talk to you about voice because you said nestor came fully formed and you knew his voice and you tell the book through two oscillating perspectives because you also have to tell it through nena through her voice. How did you decide whose turn it was to speak? And, and was it difficult to move back and forth between lenses? And, and did Nena come as fully formed as Nestor did? Those are great questions. So I'll start with the first bit. Um, how did I choose when to change perspective? I almost didn't because their voices, the two characters are always in conversation together. You know, they grow up together on the rancho. They come from different classes. They have a lot of arguments and they have a lot of dialogue and they often fight quite a lot. And so um, when I was writing their dialogue, it just sparked with life because they were always going at it. And there was a lot of back and forth and back and forth. And so as I was putting the book together, that rhythm carried through the structure of the chapters because I found myself flipping back and forth, back and forth between their points of view. Now, in the beginning of the book, I was more like driving the car. I was more in control, so to speak, because I knew there was some like dramatic irony I wanted to make happen. Uh, the two are separated for nine years. Uh, Nestor believes that Nena is dead for nine years. And I wanted, and Nena is not dead, in fact, um, but she believes that Nestor, she doesn't understand why Nestor left their ranch um, after this one fateful night that occurs in the first chapter. So it's not a spoiler to say. So I did control uh, a little bit the back and forth there because I wanted Nestor to stay in the dark until he saw Nana. And I wanted the build up to that chapter to have good payoff. And uh, it was a delight to write. But after that, um, those voices, uh, that dialogue, their back and forth drove the way I structured the book. Now, Nena, to get to the second part of your question, was more difficult to dig into. And I find this is something that I experience when I write my heroines. Um, sometimes I have found they take longer to crystallize than the male romantic leads. I think because when I'm writing from the female perspective, 
am required to be very vulnerable with myself and the things that I struggle with personally in order to make the character really work. And that's hard work. I think it's really difficult. The genres of romance and horror, which are the two pools that I like to play in, both demand so much of the writer in terms of emotional maturity and vulnerability. And um, that's hard. <laughs> it's very difficult. Uh, but I found that Nena... Like the character grew up on the ranch with Nestor. She grew up in dialogue with Nestor and writing the character, she grew in dialogue with Nestor. So Nestor was always the strong, clear voice that I knew. I always knew who he was. And so Nena grew out of him, so to speak. And they built upon each other and deepened one another as characters. One of the themes I, I took away from the book is that of value, not necessarily self-worth, but the value put on you by others. And I saw this both with, you know, with Nena and Nestor, because Nena lamented what would happen if she were married off to another ranchero family. She would become the low mm -hmm. female in rank. And, and even when she, with time, would be elevated to the senior female, she would still have to answer to her husband, whoever that might be. Mm -hmm. And with mm -hmm. Nestor, as a vaquero, he was beholden to the patron. So talk to mm -hmm. me about this social structure. Yeah, so the rancho in uh, the 19th century South Texas had a very socially stratified, it was a very socially stratified world and a very small world and a very patriarchal world. Um, the head of the table, so to speak, was the patron or the owner of the ranch, the ranchero. And that in this book is Nena's father. And um, next in line would be his son or his sons, his brothers. There's... Um, the structure, the social structure of the ranch was also part of the family structure because these were family owned uh, businesses, so to speak, uh, family run communities. They're very tight knit. And so one thing that I thought about as I was putting this book together was the family and how that has changed both so much and so little in the years between the 1840s and today. For example, I went to my grandparents' house to chat with them, to hang out, but also I sat them down at their kitchen table and I was like, okay, guys, what are the spooky stories laid on me? I want to hear everything. And my grandpa was like, oh yeah, la llorona, you know, kind of the normal stuff that we are accustomed to hearing. And I was interested in the boogeyman or El Cuco or El Cucuy, as he is sometimes called. And I asked if they had ever heard stories about him when they were growing up. And my grandma said, you know, yeah, we heard stories about El Cuco that were used to kind of scare us and get us to behave. But what my father said when he really wanted to scare us was, your mother will hear about this. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, that drove home, like, for people like Nana, like, yes, the vampires that prowl the dark are a terrible threat. Yes, the settlers who are coming who want to take her family's land are a terrible threat. But also, the huge boogeymen in her life are her parents, and they represent the very patriarchal structure that she is beholden to as somebody who is coming of age in this time and in this place. And as somebody who writes historical fiction, but who also likes to write women, uh, female characters who are ready to fight for their agency, to fight for their autonomy and independence, it's a difficult tightrope to walk because I want you, the reader, to believe that you're in a historical period, that you're immersed in this era that unfortunately does have this, has these constraints on the characters. But at the same time, I'm a 21st century writer writing for a 21st century audience and I want I want to tell a specific kind of story. So that definitely, it, it's, 
I remember once reading a tweet by the historical romance author Courtney Milan that has stuck with me for years. She wrote, when you're writing historical fiction, the aim is not to be perfectly historically accurate. The goal is to write something that is historically plausible, that serves the story that you're trying to tell, that helps support the characters, that keeps the reader immersed in that world. So that's what I try to do. The book blends together quite a few genres, you know, horror, romance, historical fiction, fantasy. You just mentioned Courtney Milan. Do you draw inspiration from any other authors of these genres? So for Vampires of El Norte, I drew from a lot of disparate sources. I read a lot of folktales. I did a lot of research. But in terms of what I was reading when I wrote it, I was binge reading romance. Some of my favorite romance writers are actually writers of contemporary romance fiction. And so it doesn't seem like, you know, books by Emily Henry and Allie Hazelwood would contribute to me researching writing this historical horror set in 1840s Mexico, but truly it did. I really love also um, historical romances by Mimi Matthews, who she really delves deep in the historical period and brings underrepresented voices to the page. And her book, The Siren of Sussex, is definitely one of my favorites. But uh, yeah, though reading those books absolutely contributed to the way that Vampires of El Norte is structured as a romance. So it does blend a multiplicity of genres. We have Western, we have horror, we have historical, but romance is the skeleton that the book builds on. And so it is not a spoiler to say it has a happily ever after. I read in a Writer's Digest interview that rejection served as a launching point for your first published novel, The Hacienda. Mm-hmm. How do you feel you've grown as a writer since your early days of, of writing? And I, I wonder, is it due to genre blending or something else? This is a fantastic question. I think I've grown as a writer since The Hacienda came out because I've learned how important I've become aware, rather, of how important it is to write for myself first. The Hacienda came about after a lot of rejection because I realized it was time for me to write a book for me and not for what I thought people wanted from me. And when it came time to write Vampires of El Norte, I found myself falling into that same impulse to write the book that I thought was expected of me. You know, I thought in publishing, it's very difficult um, historically to be a writer of Latin American descent because publishing has for a long time demanded a certain kind of story from us. You know, contemporary novels of trauma and immigration or, you know, magical realism is as genre heavy as a lot of publishers are willing to go when it comes to Latinx writers. But I am somebody who has always been drawn to genre. So I, I, it was hard for me to figure out where I fit, so to speak, and what they wanted of me. And when it came time to write Vampires of El Norte, I realized I was overwhelmed by the positive reception that the Hacienda had to the point that it made me burst into tears a number of times because it was so moving to me to know that it resonated with so many readers. And I realized I needed to bring that same writing for myself first mentality to Vampires of El Norte, despite the fact that all of a sudden there was an audience who was waiting for it, which is a brilliant thing for a young writer, for an early career writer to have. Like it's, I'm so grateful for it, but it's also very intimidating because all of a sudden the opinion isn't just of like a single editor who says yes or no to your manuscript. It's of hundreds or even thousands of readers who are waiting for the next thing. And I really was afraid of disappointing them. And I'm very happy with the reception that the Vampires of El Norte has had. 
So you wrote this book for you, but do you have a hope for what readers will take away from the book? I really hope that they take away a sense that even in the darkest times, it is possible to have a happily ever after. So at this time of year, some people turn to books or, or movies to scare them. Is this the type of, you know, monster, quote unquote, that scares you most? Um, I think for me personally, I'm more of a ghost girly. I think I am most scared by ghosts and demonic possession. Those things absolutely scare my socks off. Vampires for me are scary, but uh, I think I could go scarier, you know? <laughs> the book is Vampires of El Norte. Isabel Cañas, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. It was an honor. That was Isabel Cañas, author of the book Vampires of El Norte, which was published by Berkeley. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Goulet.